Hey everyone, thanks for stopping in to listen to my latest sermon. It will begin in just a minute. Before it does, I want to ask a few things of you. First, if you are a regular listener to this podcast and you listen on some type of podcast host, would you subscribe? If you do that, then you'll be notified immediately when a new podcast is uploaded. And plus, we have some other audio content in the works, and if you'll subscribe, you'll be one of the first people to know about that. Along those same lines, if you find this podcast and these sermons to be helpful to your life, would you do us a favor and leave us a rating or review on your podcast host? Doing so helps our sermons be heard by more people, and as I've said before, we think that's really important. And finally, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, it would be great if you would consider making a financial donation. You can do that by going to creeksidebiblechurch.org give. And actually, one more thing. If God uses this sermon in any way to impact your life, please let me know about it. You can do so by emailing respond at creekside.me. It would give me great joy to know that God used my words. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for Jesus. So it's so easy to to forget about everything that I say on Sunday mornings, you know, and uh, to go through uh, our lives, including my own, as if nothing has happened. And today we finish up this series, and I think that by God's grace, we're going to look at a passage of scripture that that really is all-encompassing of kind of everything that I've said for the last seven weeks, and uh, and it's all going to center around this word saved. And if you've been a Christian a long time, then you are very familiar with the, the language of salvation or saved or I've been saved, you know, all those things. Uh, but a lot of times... We don't mean enough by that, and I hope in this series what we've accomplished is that you and I both have have come to a place where we've seen that Jesus' resurrection can change everything for us. I mean, it can be a life-altering event in history for us, not just for the world. But also, I hope that we've seen that as we enter into the resurrection of Jesus, remember we talked about that, how we die with him when we become Christians and we also rise with him. As we enter into the resurrection of Jesus and we take on the new life, which is the name of the series, as we take that on, I hope that you've seen just, and not even just seen, but but really began to understand and to feel and to take pride in uh, all that this new life offers unto us. And today we'll look at this, this just last word, this word saved. And it is our goal in the Christian faith a lot of times to see people get saved. But by that, oftentimes we only mean stay out of hell. 
But what we're going to see in this passage that, honestly, it's just a challenging passage. It was, it was complicated to study. But when you get to the heart of it, it's like, it's like uh, I don't know. I, I, don't ha- I didn't think of an illustration for this, but I should have. It, it's like something where you peel back a layer and it gets even better. It's like a banana. Uh, you know, there it is. There's the illustration I should have written down before I got on a stage. Uh, it's like a banana. And, and, and if you just take a bite of the outside, you're like, what's happening here? But once you peel it back, you're like, Wow, I want to eat one of these every day. I, I, I mean, this is a big deal. And, and we're going to see in Romans 10, 1 through 10-ish, uh, that, that Paul shows us that this idea of being saved is an idea that we must all grasp if we're truly going to be thankful for what Jesus has done through the resurrection. And what he's going to say is that being saved is something I think much grander than we may give it credit for, and maybe we get there in a different way uh, than sometimes people in our society think. And this is how Paul kind of begins. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Let's begin just by talking. Let me just talk to you who are Christians. Our heart's desire for every person should be that they become saved. And I think that in the last few years in Christian America, we've seen kind of a turning away from that. And I think it's one of the major problems that that we as Christians have. We care more about getting people to vote like us or, or think like us or have our morality than sometimes we do about getting them saved. And Paul is a Jewish person, but he has a lot of disagreements with the Jews, primarily about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah But he has a lot of disagreements about who must follow the law and who doesn't need to follow the law and those types of things. And Paul's goal is not to get everybody to think like him. Paul's goal is not to get everybody to act like him. It's not to get everybody to dress like him. It's not to get everybody to have the same morals as him. Paul's goal for the Jewish people and for all people truly was none other than that they would be saved. We'll talk about what that means, but really he's just saying to become a Christian, to be Jesus followers, to, to follow Jesus. And, and I would just ask you, if, if it is your heart's desire and prayer for people who don't know Jesus to know Jesus, like, is that on your radar at all? Is that at the center of, of what your heart's desire is? And especially, specifically maybe, when you think about those who don't know Jesus, what is your heart's desire? Or do you have a desire at all? Are you just annoyed? Is your heart just hardened and like, I don't like those people and they're, they're ruining our country? And Because, I mean, maybe I'm preaching to the choir, I don't know, but I'm on Facebook and, and it seems like a lot of the Christians I know don't have a heart's desire to see anybody become a Christian or to be saved. It's to push a political viewpoint uh, or to not even, I don't, sometimes not even the political viewpoint, it's just to make other people sound like idiots. And I look at the, the Christian America that I live in, and it's, it's a sad state of affairs to me 
that we've come from the Apostle Paul, who we would all kind of agree much of the foundation of what we believe is because of what he did and how he lived and what he wrote down. And here we are, you know, thousands of years later, and we are so far away from having a heart's desire that that's just, I want those people to be saved. It's something much uglier. It's something much different. And even the way people talk about those of another faith or Muslims, for example. I mean, it's like when I hear Christians talk about people of the Islamic faith, it's almost as if they just wish they'd die. But when Paul talks about the Jews, who, who, by the way, he even kind of alludes to, they're the ones that nailed Jesus to the cross. I mean, they were the ones chanting crucify him. And, and, and his heart's desire is not one of, of anger or vengeance or anything of the sort. It's for these people to be saved. And I think that we could do like a whole just just sermon series on like hey this is this should be the heart of christians this should be what we strive for this should be our goal for every person that doesn't know jesus and if we have other goals if we have other agendas then we need to chuck them because our heart's desire and our prayer by the way you should be praying for this to happen should be that people that don't know jesus come to know jesus and they get saved now, the Jewish people were different than the people, you know, most often in America that we want to see saved, that we want to see become Christians. The Jewish people, Paul says here, they are, they're like zealous about God. But their zealousness is not based, their zeal is not based on knowledge. And then Paul explains why. Because they, they thought that they could, notice this, establish their own righteousness. And so they rejected the righteousness that God offered. And we know and we'll see that this is a righteousness that comes only through Jesus. Now, here's the thing about it. While the Jewish people were like, we could be zealous by following the law, by, by, by doing exactly everything that God has told us to do and commanded for us to do. We could, we could earn a right relationship with God through that. That's how I would define righteousness. I think that's biblically speaking what it is. I mean, we can earn that right re relationship with God if we just follow all the rules. And we've talked about that in this series. But in modern America... It's not really how people think. Now, there's a lot of people, and you probably know people like this, that, that if you said, okay, how do you have a good relationship with God? They would say, well, I, I just kind of live a good life. And there's this scale. You probably have talked to somebody about this if you're a Christian or even if you're not a Christian. I mean, if you're just kind of sitting around eating dinner and you're talking to people about spiritual things, then this would be something that would almost come up, you know, in a regular way. Like, it, I think that, that I... I think God loves me, that I have a good relationship with God because overall, whatever this means, overall, I'm a morally good person. I do pretty much good things compared to the bad things and the good outweighs the bad. Another way that in our society I, I see people trying to establish their own righteousness is simply just through thinking that God has a good, right relationship with everybody. There's an assumption that if you're born and you're human because God created you, that you automatically gain a right standing before God and you just have this relationship that comes naturally. And what happens for a lot of people 
is that they reject the righteousness that Jesus offers because like the Jews, they have sought to establish their own that is not based on knowledge because God has made clear, and it's very clear in the book of Romans, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We do not naturally or by our good works have a right, good relationship with God. In fact, as we turn our attention to this word saved, the Bible declares that we have all fallen short of the glory of God and all of us then deserve death. And when it says death in the Bible, oftentimes it doesn't refer to just our physical bodies dying, but, but really death for eternity, which sounds bad, right? I mean, not just where we disappear forever, but where we in some ways are, are dying forever. And so the Bible makes very clear that naturally we don't have righteousness. The righteousness of God is the righteousness that comes through Jesus, a righteousness that comes through believing that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, and we'll turn our attention back to that. And if we have this righteousness, this is what Paul is telling us here, then we are saved. Now this is the key word of the day, saved, and like I said at the beginning, when we think of saved, do we not think, maybe you you don't, but I do most of the time. I think of, I am saved from the fiery pits of hell. And I just kind of leave it there. There's this famous sermon in Christian history where uh, a guy preached a sermon called uh, Sinners in the Hands of an, of an Angry God. And, and I've, I've heard that it, at least in one of the deliverances of this sermon that he held a spider over a candle the whole time. <laughs> that's pretty dramatic right and he's like you are the spider you know or whatever and 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 so uh, this is and then it's like get saved and this is what you avoid and that is true but but saved is a word that is so much richer and deeper and I think more valuable and more pertinent to this series that we've been doing for the last seven weeks and and here the word Saved is a word, the word soteria, and it means into salvation. So it means being moved into savedness or land or whatever you want to put there. And the word saved, which is connected, they have the same root, is the word sozo. And, and that word is, is just everywhere in the New Testament. I mean, when you think of, of the benefits of Jesus or becoming a Christian, I mean, the, the most often used word in the Greek version of the Bible is, the one it was written in, is the word sozo. And sozo means something to this effect, to make sound, to save, to to preserve safe from danger, loss, or destruction. In a Christian sense, to save from death and judgment as the consequences of sin, and to bring in all positive blessing in the place of condemnation, to save from the penalty of death and destruction, not merely to make happy, but to bestow everlasting life as the result of resurrection. One author described it this way, to rescue from great peril. Saved, it's like this very big comprehensive word. But then, this is where it really struck me. And this is where I was like, this sermon needs to go this direction. Because I was, I was trying to dive deeper into this word, sozo and, and soteria. And like, what, what, do, what do they mean? You know, I mean, saved. Saved can mean a lot of things. You know, I say, you saved my life every time Bryn makes me a meal. You know, I mean, what, what are we actually talking about here when we, when we see the word saved in the Bible? 
What should we be talking about in Christian circles where we, when we say like, are, are you saved? We don't say that anymore, but they used to say that. Like, are you saved? I mean, what are we really asking? What are we really talking about when we use this language and we connect it to the Bible? And then I, I found this, this, a couple of places I found this, that, that there are three kind of main ideas that, that could be seen in this word sozo, in this Greek word that translates saved in our, in our Bibles. And the first one is to rescue, and primarily from hell when we see it in the Bible, what I've already described, but, but just the idea of rescue is better to me than saved because rescue is more detailed and it's a better word picture and I have things that I think about when I think about the word saved. And I'll tell you a couple of those things, or rescued, excuse me, I'll tell you a couple of those things. First uh, is I actually saw somebody get the Heimlich maneuver once, and I, I worked, it's a relative term for this story, but, but uh, when I wasn't playing baseball and not in school, which was about one day a year, I worked at a retirement home at the end of high school and in college, so probably worked a total of like 50 hours over five years, but, but I worked there, and on one of those hours, uh, we're serving dinner, getting our hands burned by the hottest plates in the world, and all of a sudden, I don't know what's going on, but all of a sudden I look and, and there's kind of commotion and I didn't know what was going on. And the owner of our restaurant who, who hardly ever came in for the dinner, I, I'm sorry, of the whole facility, who was hardly ever in the building, uh, all of a sudden he is giving the Heimlich maneuver to this 90-year-old woman and, uh, and he got whatever food was in her mouth out, or in her throat out and, and she was fine, and I don't even think he broke her ribs, which is the big fear, especially with elderly people, because it requires force to get something out of the throat. And, and, and it was this, this weird experience, because when I saw somebody rescued, there's this kind of strange adrenaline that takes place, because it, it's like adrenaline, and maybe if you've ever been a part of anything like this, there's this adrenaline that like goes almost in two different directions, because you're super freaked out, like that person was going to die, and so there's this adrenaline that kind of comes from the negative, and then there's this other adrenaline, like well, they didn't, you know, like they were rescued. They, that guy is a hero, you know, he just saved her life. And then there's this other moment, and, and this even a split second, because one time I, I was in downtown Portland, and, and some of you were with me because we used to help out with this homeless ministry called Night Strike in downtown Portland, and it's under one of the bridges, the Burnside Bridge, I think. It's not there anymore, but that's where it was. And, and we're standing by the... Uh, the train tracks down there where the max train comes through and I'm talking to a very good friend of mine guy in my wedding he was a, a youth pastor and I was a youth pastor and we had taken our youth groups together and all of a sudden the max train comes flying in and he's standing with his back to this thing and I, I think by the grace of God I remained totally calm and all I did was just kind of reach out and pull him. And I don't know if it would have taken his head off or if he would have missed it by two inches. But I, I very well may have saved his life. None of us were paying attention and the thing would have, you know, he would have lost that battle. Uh, and I just grabbed him. And yet even in that, you know, there's this feeling of fear 
freaked outness and like, wow, I just saved a life. I'm a big deal, you know? I mean, it was like all kinds of adrenaline and it happened so, so, so fast. And when I see that the word so-so has the idea of rescue wrapped up in it, for me, it connects in a, in a very different way than saved because saved whatever, you know, I mean, that's not a word that, that really has any value to me. But rescued is so different. Because what it says is that I actually am like that spider hanging over the fire. I actually needed somebody to come in and rescue me from peril, from death that would last for eternity. But even more, I needed somebody to rescue me from the bondage of sin and and from what Satan would do in my life. And what Paul is saying is that in the righteousness of Jesus, a righteousness that comes through belief, which we'll see in just a second, in the righteousness of Jesus... You're not just saved, you are rescued. He has come in and he has rescued you from the perils of death. I love EMTs more than anybody in the world because every time they show up, I feel like somebody's getting rescued. They are my favorite job. Like I I would hate to be the EMT that meets me at a coffee shop because I would talk to them all day. I do that with pretty much every job. If you have any job that's slightly, even a little bit interesting to me, then you won't like me because I'll just ask a bunch of questions. I'm like a kid that grew up on Mr. Rogers and it never went away, you know? Like I need to know how that works uh, because I can't do anything really. Uh, And so so I I just, EMTs, and and I just, just think like sometimes when we think about Jesus we think of them in this like he's out there he did this great thing whatever but when we think of an EMT and when they show up we just are like wow what a hero you know what a hero and when I think about Jesus rescuing me it's much easier to go what a hero I mean I was destined for death And he came down and rescued me. There's this other thing that goes into it, and and it's it's healing. This word so-so contains the idea of being healed from something. And I just look around at so many people that I know, people that I love deeply. And they are broken, and they are hurting. And they're looking for healing, but they won't turn their eyes to Jesus to find it. And so they try, they have tried just about everything. Drugs, alcohol, romantic relationships. They've tried better and better jobs. They've tried gaining more and more money. And yet, they're still so sick inside. And it's so clear to people around them, even non-Christians around them, I think it's so clear that they are sick or broken or fill in the blank inside. And they won't turn to Jesus. I don't know why, but they won't turn to Jesus. And when I see the word healed, it says something about what Jesus can do inside of us, right? I, uh, you guys know if you've been around that I just, I loved my dog. And so he comes up in like every other sermon series. And maybe Hazel will have enough stories someday that we can, that we can just change him over to Hazel. But, uh, but with Roy, he was a, a very sick dog. But we would always go to the vet. We'd drop down about $180 every single time. And every time, every time until the very thing that killed him, they'd go, well, 
Can't really figure it out, but it sure is a problem. <laughs> it's like, what? And then, okay, that'd be $180. And then we'd walk out very frustrated, like, what is wrong with you? You know, I mean, from the, I mean, he had two parvo tests, which is bad for a puppy to get. In the first month that we owned him, he was a $200 dog, we thought. He was like a million dollar dog in the end, you know, but, but he, it was like $200 for him and then $200 a week later and then $200 a week later because of these parvo tests. And this, one of them, I mean, the vet, as he took that test tube away, I mean, he was like, you could see he was about to tell us our puppy was going to die. And then the test results came back and he said, I don't know. He's sure sick, but we can't figure out what's wrong with him. And that's exactly the same thing that they said to us the last week of his life. And it's so frustrating to prop, plop down your $180 and walk away with no explanation. I, I just did this. I, I told you a, a few weeks ago that, that I've been having some weird vision problems. And by the way, in case you've been worried about me and praying for me, hint, hint, uh, then, then uh, let me give you a quick update. It seems my vision is almost all the way better all the time unless I'm doing something that requires physical exertion and then it's kind of worse than it was before. But as long as I'm doing normal stuff, then it's all better and it's all fixed. But, but on the day that, that my, I went to the doctor for my vision thing, I, I went in and they didn't tell me anything at the first one. So now I'm $20 down for the copay, which I know if you're without health insurance that I'm, you know, first world problems and I'm whining, but I'm going to whine about it anyway for a second. $20. And then, and then they say, oh, the doctor wants you to get lab work done. And I didn't think about it at the time, but they were testing me for diabetes and I don't have that. I, I was, I, that was for you know, pretty certain that I don't have diabetes now. Anyway, I do like sugar. Some people think I'll have it someday, but right now I'm pretty certain I don't have diabetes. And they made me pay another $20 for a test that I knew how it was going to be resolved. And then I went to the eye doctor later in the day, plopped down my next $20. You know, now I'm $60 in about four hours into this deal. And he, and the, the final result was yeah, I don't really know. So it's actually what I Googled and found out on the internet before was like it might be eye strainer from the cold I had. Like, oh, well, now I'm $60 and four hours in and I have nothing to show for it. I'm, can you tell I'm fired up? I should probably be more fired up about Jesus and less fired up about these doctor appointments. But it was so frustrating. And so many of us need healing not on the outside, but I mean deep in our souls from things that happened to us when we were children or from the sins that we have committed, from the things that we have allowed to be part of our lives that were poisonous to our souls. I mean, we all have things that we've dealt with, that we have done, that, that really, really need healing. And we so often forget that Jesus is the one who saves, that Jesus is the one who heals, and that healing can be found because of the resurrection. And the last word is, is the last thing that goes into this word is, is to be made whole. You ever done a puzzle and not had a piece at the end? worst thing ever you know I don't even like puzzles so if I'm a thousand pieces in and there's not a piece then I'm probably gonna burn the puzzle you know in a fire um I'll show you unsaved you know I mean <laughs> don't do that to me or or you you're doing like uh you know, you're building something and there's directions like Ikea and then all of a sudden there's like a part missing, you know, you've been there or, or even if it didn't, you know, come, it's just, it's so, so, so frustrating. And again, I have people that don't feel whole 
I mean, they know something's missing from their lives and they just won't look to Jesus. And I even know Christians who, are, who, who just, they, they have like these midlife crises, crises, crisis, how do you say it? I don't know. But they have a midlife crisis and they think that a new car or a new house or a new wife or a new job or a new something is going to make them feel whole. And where wholeness comes from, maybe it's because we don't talk about Jesus making us whole filled, you know? Maybe it's because we don't talk about that. Maybe we just say you're saved and these people, these, these people are like, well, I know that I'll get to heaven someday because I'm saved, but they don't really understand what Jesus is offering them in that salvation. Maybe that's you. And, and this word implies that we can be made whole, that we can be filled and that can be done through Jesus because he died and rose again. So when you think of, if you're a Christian or even you're not a Christian, I mean, when you think of what salvation is and what this Christian idea of saved means, you can't just think of like, oh, I won't go to hell someday. Because if you do, you'll never be excited about all the things that Jesus brought to you when he rescued you and he healed you and he made you whole. And Paul says, like, look, the Jewish people are trying to establish a righteousness, a right relationship with God that will allow for them to be saved. Because we all want that. All, all those things I just said, there is not a single person that doesn't want them. Nobody wants to have to fear what happens after death. And nobody wants to go through their life broken. And nobody wants to go through their life feeling like something is missing, right? Everybody wants these things. And the Jewish people that Paul is talking about here, they were like, we can get them through God. At least they had that right. But we get to God by following the rules. Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not true. And then he says this, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. This word culmination is hotly debated in theological circles. Does it mean the end of the law or the fulfillment of the law? And it's probably best to see this word that translates culmination is both. And the best way, I, I was really struggling to understand it until I saw this illustration. That we should see this word like we would see the finish line of a race. The finish line of a race is the goal, right? You're trying to make it to the finish line. But it's also the end of the race. It's time to start a new one maybe. And Jesus is both the fulfillment of the law. He was the goal of the law. He was the aim of the law. All of the law and the prophets pointed to him, as the Bible says to us. I mean, the whole reason the law existed was to point out that we are sinners who need a Savior and to point out, hopefully, that that Savior is Jesus and to make the gospel story make sense, that we could not earn our way into a relationship with God that would save us. And so God instead came down in the person of Jesus, he lived sinlessly, he died on a cross, he rose again, and all we must do is believe. And that also means, as we've already talked about in this series, that when we give our lives to Jesus, we don't have to follow the law. We live right because we love Jesus, 
not because we're trying to earn a relationship with God. He's the end of the law. The law's purpose has been fulfilled. It's over. The race has been ran. It's been won by Jesus himself. And now we live under a new code, a a code, a, a law of grace, not the law of the letter that was given to us to point us towards Jesus. And Paul says, look, 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 Jesus, because he came and he was the fulfillment, the end of the law, now all you must do to be saved All you must do to be saved is believe. It's belief. Now this idea of belief is another word that we use in Christian circles that that I I just think we don't really mean anything by it. I mean, uh, in, in many years of Christian history, our goal has been to get people to believe in Jesus so that they can be saved. And by believe, we meant just have some type of mental knowledge that Jesus died and rose again. And then we would get them to just say a prayer. Yeah, I believe that Jesus died and rose again. And then we'd say, okay, good luck. You know, have a nice life and we'll see you in heaven someday. I'm glad we got that taken care of. And it is important to mentally believe that Jesus died and rose again understand that but but when the bible says belief it is not talking about some mental assertion because as james says even the demons believe i would offer that the demons believe that jesus died and rose again for the sins of people more than most of us believe in that very thing the idea of belief is to place your faith in something to say look not only do i understand it mentally but i am now laying my life into that belief the illustration that's often used, I don't have a chair up here, but the illustration is, that is often used is, is one of a chair. And, and you can believe that a chair will hold you up. But the biblical idea of belief is one in which you sit down. You sit on the chair and it does hold you up. And so what Paul says here is, hey, hey if you want to be saved... You can't do it through working your way into heaven. You're not going to do it by establishing your own righteousness. The only way you're going to do it is by saying, Jesus, I I actually believe that you died and rose again, and so I will give my life to you. And he'll add to that in the end of our passage today. But he continues with this super confusing language in Romans 10, 5 through 7. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your hearts who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Have you ever read this before in the Bible? Like when you're just reading through the Bible? You probably went, huh, and then kept moving. That's what I've done every time I've read this. I've read through the Bible, you know, on multiple occasions. And every time I read Romans 10, 5 through 7, I was like, wow. At least it's surrounded by really cool stuff that makes sense, you know. And then you just you just pass right over it. And, and the reason that you probably have trouble understanding this is because you're not a first century Jewish person. And this is this language is wrapped up in three Old Testament sections. The first one, Leviticus 18.5, says, Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. And here's the reality. I think this is what Paul's getting at. You can't. Right? I mean, if being saved is a result of keeping all the decrees and laws, then you're not saved. 
you're not saved. And every person reading this would have understood that they were not saved if really it came down to them perfectly fulfilling the law. Why? Because they knew that they had to consistently go to the temple to kill animals because they had sinned, because they had messed up, because they had not done what the law of God wanted. And so if life and salvation are dependent upon fulfilling the law perfectly, it can't happen. But then there's this other section that Paul uh, has in mind and he quotes from and it's Deuteronomy 9 4 through 6 after the Lord your God has driven them out before you do not say to yourself the Lord has brought me up here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness no it is on account of it is not on account of your righteousness or integrity that you are going to take possession of their land but on account of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are stiff-necked people. You see, do you see? Can you kind of connect it now? I mean, Paul has already said, you can't work your way into salvation. And he says, let me prove it to you. You guys all believe the Old Testament, the, la- the first half of the Bible. You all believe in that. And look what Moses already said to your forefathers. Hey, you aren't going to get the promised land because of your righteousness, because you have done great things. You're doing it because of God's grace and because he's looking at these other nations and they're not his people. You aren't saved by doing great things. You are saved by being the people of God. That's Paul's point. And so let me just read Romans 10, 5, and 6. And Moses writes about this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them, but the righteousness by faith says do not say in your hearts. And that's how Paul is connected this. But there's this other section, Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor it is nor is it beyond the sea, so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us, so we may obey it. No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your hearts, so you may obey it. Paul basically replaces this Old Testament command and then he encapsulates it with Christ. Uh, Moses, before he dies, is looking at the Jewish people in Deuteronomy 30 and he's saying, hey, I'm gonna die, keep living for Jesus, And by the way, you have the law now. It's near to you. And so you don't need to go, this can't be your excuse for not obeying what God has told you to do. Like, well, if we could just go up into heaven and find out what he wants from us, then we would obey the law of God. Or, hey, if we could just cross the sea, which is very closely connected to going into the depths. If we could just go into the depths of the ocean and find out what God wants, then we would obey him. But instead he says it's near to you. And Paul flips that on his head and and he connects it to the gospel. And he says, look, look, you don't have to wonder about how to obtain righteousness, about how to be saved because it has come down to you in the person of Christ. Do you see that? You don't have to wonder what it's like, how you can get into a relationship with God that will allow for you to be saved, that will allow for you to avoid hell and to be healed and to be whole. You don't have to wonder why because Jesus came down. He came down. And not only that, but Jesus rose again. 
He already ascended into the deep, right? He already went down. And he's come back so you know how to be saved. He's saying, look, the Jewish people have sought to establish a righteousness of their own. And they've done that because they're ignorant of how to be saved. But they ought not be ignorant because like in the Old Testament, grace was always the underlying factor of a relationship with God. And that is the same now and it's proved in the person of Jesus. One author said this, the grace of God that underlies the Mosaic covenant is operative now in the new covenant. And just as Israel could not plead the excuse that she did not know God's will, so now, Paul says, neither Jew nor Gentile can plead the ignorance of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. The reality is you cannot be ignorant because Jesus came, he died, he rose again, and we have the word of God to say, you wanna know how to be saved? Give your life to Jesus. Place your belief in him. And Paul explains what exactly that means. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. This means that the gospel message is accessible and understandable. That's my words. Accessible and understandable. It's near to you. That is, Paul's words again, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, You will be saved, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Notice this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, oftentimes, Romans 10, 8 through 13 there is really used as a blueprint for for exactly what process you must go through to be saved. You must believe, and then you must confess with your mouth. And both of those things are really important, but more likely than being a blueprint for how to get saved, because Paul has already said all you must do is believe to get saved, uh, more likely, Paul is actually connecting this back to Deuteronomy 30. But really, what we should notice is that there are two major parts of belief. And I want all of you to hear this. If you're a Christian, you need to be able to explain this to other people because there are two defining characteristics of Christians that other people are not going to believe. There are two things, there are two beliefs that that we believe that are Christians that other people will not believe. And there are two beliefs that I believe if people will come to believe, then they will be Christians. The first is this, that Jesus is Lord. Now look, most people believe that Jesus was a man. Most people believe that Jesus was a very important man. Most people believe even that Jesus was a very nice, good man that perhaps changed the world for the better. What separates Christian belief from all of these other beliefs about Jesus is first that Christians must believe that Jesus is Lord. When I talked about sitting on the chair, one of the things we mean by sitting on the chair is saying, Jesus, you are Lord of all. What does that mean? That means that we are saying, you deserve all of our obedience and all of our respect. It, It means that we are declaring that we will live our entire lives for Jesus because he rules and reigns over everything. That's a pretty big separating belief, right? I mean, like, it's easy to go, yeah, I think Jesus is great. Jesus is awesome. He came. He died. He's a cool guy, whatever. I mean, I really like reading about him in the Bible even versus I believe Jesus is Lord of all. 
and I'm going to live my entire life for him. The first, believe in Jesus, great guy, will not get you saved. It will not save you from hell. It will not make you whole. It will not help you be healed. But the second one will. And so when we talk about belief in Jesus, according to Paul, we are talking about not just believing in this guy that existed. We're talking about saying, Jesus, you are Lord. But the other one is equally important. And that is a belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, as Christians, we believe he died for our sins, and that is, that is wrapped up in him rising again because without the death for sins, there was no need for a resurrection, right? But I'll tell you this, every person that exists on the planet today believed that Jesus believes that Jesus died. We all agree there. Whether a person is the staunchest atheist in the world or the strongest Christian, we have a similar belief in that there was a man named Jesus, and he died, and most people, because of the, the, the wonderful history that we have in the Bible, even non-Christians will believe that he died through crucifixion. And that there were crazy events surrounding his death. Whether real or just perceived. But what separates Christian belief from, from non-Christian belief is that we don't just believe Jesus died, we believe Jesus rose again. And part of the reason that I like doing a series on the resurrection after Easter is that I believe in the Christian culture of America today, we are so focused on his death that we forget that he actually got out of the grave too. And in the early church, the, the Christians, they would go around and they would tell people, hey, yeah, hey, you know Jesus died. You understand that. You believe Jesus died. We think that was for our sins. But hey, even crazier, here's what we believe. Jesus rose again. And when people came to believe that Jesus got out of the grave, that is when they became Christians. So let's just be, just be so clear. Let's just be so clear. If, you, if you're not a Christian, then man, I'm just asking you this morning to, to believe that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus, yes, died and rose again, but he also rose from the grave. And if you will believe those two things, then, then what Paul has declared unto you is that you will be saved, that you can find healing and wholeness and you can avoid an eternity in hell. And if you're a Christian, You've already declared Jesus as Lord. And you've already come to the conclusion that he rose again. Then I would hope that you would embrace all of the salvation that he has given you. I mean, we've talked about things in this series and we've talked about bearing fruit and having a relationship with God and not being under the burden of the law anymore and being set free from the sins, being able to not do the things that we don't want to do anyway. We've talked about wonderful things. But you will probably forget most of them. And so my hope is as we finish this series, that you will be a person who no longer says saved is something that will just happen someday. But when we talk about salvation, when we talk about God being mighty to save us, we wouldn't just think of something that happened someday, but we would go, wow, because of the resurrection, I am saved from hell. I can find healing and I can be made whole. 
My hope is that even if you forget everything, the word saved would be connected to the fact that Jesus got out of the grave and forevermore you would feel and think about the deep theological but also practical results that that has brought unto us. I just want to finish by saying this. It is incredible that Jesus came to this earth and died. But the most staggering part of it is that Jesus rose again so that we might have new life. And I really hope that we will be a people who take full advantage and who celebrate fully all that that new life offers. Let me pray that that will happen. Lord, man, God, is I just close this down and I, I really don't want us to stop thinking about the resurrection. I don't want us to return just to a place where we, we go, yeah, Jesus died for my sins or you know, even what does it mean to be a Christian? Just believe that Jesus died for my sins. But really, God, we would be a church full of passionate people, God, about the fact that you got out of the grave and when you got out of the grave, it changed everything for us who will believe. And Lord, I pray for, for people in front of me that, that have not declared you as Lord who don't believe that you rose again. And I pray, God, that you change their hearts. Uh, God, I pray for people who will listen to this sermon later online and I pray that you change their hearts. And, and Lord, they, they, I just pray, and I'm thinking of, of people specifically, Lord, I pray that, that they, God, would realize that they can't find healing or wholeness or protection from hell in anything or anyone but you and I pray that you would change their hearts Lord and for those of us who do believe God I ask I just pray I just ask God that we would be people who would always think about how great of a salvation we've come to and we would not live our lives as if salvation will happen someday, but we would live our lives in the understanding and the knowledge and the belief and even with the emotions that we have been saved and in that salvation, we have healing and wholeness. God, let us celebrate the resurrection always. I pray these things in your name. Amen.